This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Dr Aaron Martin joined me to talk about federal politics as well as Brexit. Aaron is a senior lecturer in political science and a co-director of the Policy Lab at the University of Melbourne. Then, investigative journalist and author Jess Hill joined me via Skype to talk about her new book, See What You Made Me Do, Power, Control and Domestic Abuse. Then, finally, Red Stitch Ensemble members Sarah Sutherland and Brett Cousins joined me in the studio to discuss their new production of Ulster American. Ulster American is a dark satire written by playwright David Ireland. I'm very excited now to have with me in the studio the wonderful Dr. Aaron Martin, who's come in uh, to talk about federal politics. And you may know Dr. Martin's work. Uh, if you go to Melbourne University, he may even teach you. He's a senior lecturer in political science um, and also co-director of the Policy Lab at the University of Melbourne and has been involved in Vote Compass, which is a fantastic um, I guess quiz in a way, which is um, put on the ABC's website and uh, often will tell you where you sit in the political spectrum depending on uh, what answers you give to certain policy questions. So uh, Aaron has joined me in the studio and uh, he is here now. I welcome you now. Hi there, Aaron. Thanks very much for having me, Amy. So I've been a long-term subscriber to Triple R <laughs> and a great uh, cheerleader of Triple R, so I'm actually really delighted to be here. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. It's lovely to get that feedback and so great to have you on this show, I've got to say. Um, I've certainly seen your work around and research on you know young people and their engagement in politics, which, of course, is not just going to vote. It's become so um, diverse, the ways that one can engage with politics. Um in terms of your particular areas of interest, things are getting uh, very relevant and I'm sure issues like these crop up all the time, but a lot of things you discuss are around trust in politics and politicians. You um, know a lot about, obviously, policy and you're, you uh, are teaching politics at Melbourne University. First up, I just would like to know, before we get into the nitty-gritty, what drew you to teaching politics and getting engaged in some of the issues that you've been researching? Um, so uh, part of the answer is actually why I'm really happy to be here. So I was actually a semi-professional musician and existed on the edges of sort of uh, the music industry. And then I had a choice at some point to... Um, to actually uh, make a choice as to whether I pursued that or academia. And I um, and I can tell the, the story quickly if you like. Yeah. I, was, I lived in Vancouver and I went to see my friend's band play. And there was a friend of his who was at the front working for the NDP in Canada, the equivalent of the Greens in Australia. And I just had this really short conversation with her and I said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm doing research on um, young people and, and politics for the NDP. And I really didn't think much of it at the time and I hadn't, um, you know, started a PhD or anything. And then a few years later when I was sort of deciding on what to do, I thought, actually, young people in politics is a really great PhD topic. Um, and then I pursued a, a PhD in that. So that's mm. kind of how it, how it came about. Very interesting. Yeah, I think um, I got really passionate about youth in politics when I was in high school as well. Mm. But I was one of the very few people 
who even noticed that politics was a thing. Um, and it was kind of interesting. I did a documentary about political ap- apathy mm. and interviewed all these people on the street, the young people. Yep. And um, and I was like, oh, you know, who's the prime minister? And pretty much no one could tell me. It was like a quite a disturbing moment for someone who's very politically engaged like myself at a young age to realise that not many people kind of were that aware. And this was in the, the period of John Howard, I've got to say. Yeah, so I've certainly um, shared some of those frustrations. I guess what I'd say is that I think some of it is actually due to the success of our political system. So um, there are a lot of things that I think we take for granted and things that function very well, like our health system by and large, like our education system by and large, like our public transport system by and large. Um, and I think as a consequence of that, we almost think that that just happens, mm. right? And But it, it, it is a fact that there are people working diligently um, on those things to ensure that our society functions and I've spent a fair bit of time in the US in the last few years and then uh, London a few weeks ago which we'll speak about Um, and what you see there is that there I mean those uh, societies are not functioning as well I think as Australia for all its faults and then I've traveled to you know Russia and Israel and all these other countries and you just see that you know things don't just happen automatically it's Mm. it's, you know it's actually someone um, working for this so I think some of the complacency is due to um, the success of our democracy I think some of the renewed attention actually in terms of politics in the US and and, in the UK and here is due to the fact that we probably have taken some of those things for granted and we need to start paying attention and being a bit more vigilant about those things. Yeah, that's uh, very true. And it's true that things don't just happen, as we've noticed, and there's a lot that goes on behind government, which is often revealed in things like Senate estimates, where you see all the kind of backroom things that are happening, and Mm. also then the layers of political motivations that are on top of that. Um, But the public service are an essential part of delivering services on behalf of the government of the day. And um, there is, you know, often quite a lot of turnover in in the public service. What... um that's come up recently. I, I saw on the weekend there was a, a, a piece in the Saturday paper examining a speech that Scott Morrison just gave about the public service and it was all around this question of trust and also around this idea of invisible Australians. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you can help us understand a bit what Scott Morrison was getting at when he's um, you know, picking out a particular group that he's labelled Invisible Australians or Middle Australia and what this speech was really all about. Yeah, so this speech in effect attacked the uh, public service by saying that they weren't uh they needed to be responsive to the government's needs. And he said that there was a lack of trust in um, in, the, in the public service. Now, this is kind of right where I do research, and the research is very, very clear on this, okay? So when we have a sort of hierarchy of organisations that are trusted or not trusted, um, government, uh, you know, really, they're, they're always sort of car sales people and, you know... Um, <laughs> And then the public service tends to be at the top. And that's just a general trend in that apolitical organisations like the courts, even the military up to a point, um, are just much more highly trusted. So the point that he made in the speech about public servants not being trusted is just um, not at all supported by the facts. facts. Mm. It's the opposite of that. So what he was doing, and maybe he's aware of this, what, what he was doing was basically saying that the public service should is there to serve us. Um, and that goes back to um, I think John Howard who also made that claim um, very strongly so we have a um, 
a public service that in, in, in the ideal sense is me- meant to speak truth to power. So if the government wants to pursue something, then the public service is meant to present the evidence in an impartial way. Mm. And I think that what Morrison was saying is that we expect you to do what we tell you. And Howard said that as well. Um, and, 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 and Howard sort of politicised the public service to a pretty large extent. So that will probably be easier in the sense that the public service is more politicised. But I also think there'll be, you know, incredible pushback by the public service as well. Mm. Yes, and I should correct myself. Um, it, was in, it was quiet Australians, not invisible Australians. Um, but I'm interested in the fact that this idea that the public service often is meant to be the one who comes up with a range of um, plans or ideas to fulfil a, a policy aim. Mm. So, the, you know, the government or politicians don't have the, the project laid out in detail in their mind. It's up mm. to the public service to really do this. And it seems as if um, that when, you know, they come forward and say, here's what we think is the best option, um, perhaps their advice maybe isn't trusted as often as it may have used to have been. Yeah, I think that's largely largely true, um, and, and, and polarisation, I guess, hasn't helped that. Um, I guess I'd make one other point, because there are not many good news stories in, in politics yes. around the world at the moment, and that is that um, the public service are working diligently on a number of issues, and I've um, taught a number of public servants, and it just really always impresses me into how professional they are, um, how committed to you know social go- goals that we all agree with um, are, so... I always leave those classes encouraged as to how professional and, and, and I guess, aspirational or um, altruistic those mm. um, public servants are. And then just to return to your earlier point, so one of my projects has been this policy agendas project where we coded all government legislation over a 50-year period. Thankfully, we didn't do it. We had an army of research <laughs> assistants because uh, I think we coded 6,000 pieces of legislation. But one of the things that really struck me from that project is that so much is getting done that actually doesn't make it onto to the news, right? Mm. So governments are just, you know, we saw this with the Gillard government who are incredibly effective legislators, even though they were depicted as this, you know, um, crisis prone government. So um, I think that those things are really worth remembering in terms of um, there's a lot going on in the background. Mm. That does remind me of um, a piece of research you did, perhaps this is the same one, um, with Andrea Carson and some colleagues around the Gillard government and looking at how legislatively productive and effective they were. Um, perhaps they're one of the most productive in recent times. Um, what do you think were some of the factors that makes a government productive and able to deliver on, you know, and a lot of the politicians do say, oh, well, you don't realise, you know, we've got all these really obscure bills doing really important things for, you know, farmers and for a whole range of, you know, things that aren't particularly sexy or exciting or controversial, which, as you say, they don't then make the news. Um you know, what are some of the real key factors of a good government? And, I mean, obviously the Gillard government has many flaws um, and as did many of the cabinet members and no one's perfect. But it's interesting to look at some of these case studies. What did you particularly find? Yeah, so I'm really glad that you've mentioned that because it's a really kind of intriguing part of um, research, which is we basically looked at election promises. So we looked at the promises the Gillard government made and then whether they fulfilled them. And that, again, is not an easy task because in most... Um, European democracies, uh, governments have a manifesto that they publicly release and then it's very transparent in terms of what their commitments are. Um, And we don't have that in Australia, so we Mm. had to construct that. 
and then we had to go back and, and see whether they were um, fulfilled. And what we basically fa- found is, and it might be surprising to people, is that the government ful- fulfilled the majority of its election promises. Okay, so there, there were obvious, um, you know, carbon tax that was the one that everyone you know paid attention to, um, but. Uh, putting that to one side, um, the government was very, very effective at fulfilling its election promises. And this is actually a, a finding that many of you know my colleagues around the world have also um, established. So governments generally keep the promises, the election promises they make, even though that's you know um, counterintuitive. Now, in terms of um, Gillard, I think probably the thing that she did well is she really reached across the kind of art, or she she did a very good job at managing. Um, the different sort of, let's say, constituencies within Parliament. So I think she was really good at negotiating, actually incredibly good at negotiating with the Greens and other um, independents. So mm. I don't think she's really given enough credit for that, but I think she was very, very effective at dealing with a, you know, a, a, a pretty bad deck of cards. Yeah, well, I certainly remember it being controversial and exciting Mm. (laughs) at the time to see who would form government, whether it was Tony Abbott or Julia Gillard. And she did have the independents, which were very, very different in their policy priorities. Um, So, yeah, it is quite astounding. And then you add on top of that needing to pass legislation through the Senate, not just the lower house. Mm. Um, A lot of people have said that, um, you know, the Morrison government perhaps... um, you know, has often struggled to pass some really key legislation that they think is very important. Mm. Not in recent times, I guess, if you look at the tax package, with the, which they did get through with Labor's support yeah. and others. Um, but some people would say that they aren't often open to negotiating or there's very few kind of areas on key ideological issues that they are willing to move on. Mm -hmm. And perhaps there's a bit of horse trading that goes on in the background between certain, um, you know, individuals like Pauline Hanson or Jackie Lambie. But, yeah, it doesn't seem like there is as much room to move or collaboration as there perhaps might have been in the Gillard government. Would you agree? Uh I guess I'd have a slightly different interpretation of that, and that is that I don't think the government had an agenda, or and I think that this is kind of what we're seeing play out or not play out as mm. it is at the at the moment. So, um, you mentioned before that I was involved in Vote Compass, and again, that involves. Um, actually coding the parties on their different political positions because to come up with the calibrations, we have to go through all the parties' um, policies on those 30 questions that we include in the survey. And, and again, uh, luckily I've got other people to do this for me because it's very <laughs> time-consuming. Um, but one of the things that came out, or two things came out of that, one, the parties are very different. There's this mm. kind of you know, rhetoric about, oh, they're all the same. Like that, that is simply not true, and it was almost never as true as it was this election. Having said that, the Liberal Party only had one policy, or at least one major policy, and that was tax cuts, right? And they did Mm. what, um, in a different set of circumstances, they did something similar to what Keating did in 93, which is they just relentlessly attacked the opposition. That was, you know, Morrison's um, strategy. So they did not expect to win the election in the same way that Trump didn't expect to win the election either. I I, I believe that the, the internal polling, both within the Trump uh, campaign and the Liberal campaign were saying the same thing, that they mm. weren't going to win the election. So I think they were basically caught by surprise. Um, so I think that they, um, I think Morrison's kind of stumbling his way towards some sort of agenda 
okay? But I think that um, by and large, there's, 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 there's very little. So, you know, we see these kind of micro policies like recycling, you know, um, pretty difficult to, to, to disagree with. Um, but we don't see any really major um, announcements. So I think that um, I think the inflection point will really come when um, the government has to deal with these big issues that it's in a lot of ways been been avoiding. Mm. Now, if you look at that as compared to the Labor Party, I've, I, I can't recall having seen that expansive uh, policy agenda. Um, and so there would have been, you know, from day one in, in the same way as, let's say, right in 2007, that they, they would have really, you know, hit the ground running. Whereas I think um, the, 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 the coalition, I mean... I think they are still sort of dealing with the fact that they're in government. Yes. And, well, it is interesting, though, that they went to an election, as you say, with really one key policy item, which was tax cuts, which is going to lift wages, it's going to create more jobs, we're the party of creating more jobs. Mm. Small business is great because they create jobs. And that was the kind of rhetoric you got in terms of the kind of positive um, policy platform they had. Yep. And, of course, then there was plenty of scare campaigns about what Labor was going to do to your negative gearing and to your mm. franking credits. Uh, but in terms of the other issues that seem to preoccupy the coalition, there's, you know, those issues around religious freedoms and freedom of speech, which seems to kind of bubble along and pop up randomly at different points in time. Mm. Um, there's the issue of... Australia's place in the Pacific and uh, its relationship with China and America. And that seems to keep uh, coming up very recently, of course, with Andrew Hastie talking mm-hmm. about China. And there's quite a lot of division around the way that politicians should speak of China. Mm-hmm. Um, it, from a perspective of, you know, someone like you who's a lecturer and you, you know, Melbourne University is a very diverse um, cohort of people, and we have a number of international students in Melbourne. What are some of the implications of the kinds of conversations that politicians are having at the moment about foreign policy? Yeah, so I think that's a that's a great example, um, Amy. And um, the, the 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 thing I guess I'd say about that is that um, the Hong Kong thing is really intriguing to me because it's about something much larger than just, you know, the issue at hand. And that is basically how the Chinese government or Beijing deal with um, dissent, um, how, um, whether they will be able to um, allow that or whether they'll um, crack down on, on, on the protesters, Hong Kong's position in the global financial system, because one argument against, you know, a more forceful intervention in, say, Tiananmen in 89... Um, is that, you know, Hong Kong is central to global finance. So if you kind Mm. of shut down Hong Kong, then there are all these repercussions to the Chinese economy. So all of these things come together about, you know, big geopolitical questions about, you know, the the, the role of democracy in China, the role of dissent. Um, I can't, I still can't see a a path forward because the Beijing don't want to stand down and the protesters aren't going away. So I don't know how, how you resolve that. Now, the crucial question is what does Australia do about that? Okay, and uh, Morrison, I think, said during the week that um, one of the things that keeps him awake at night is a future confrontation between America and China, and I think it should keep him awake at night because it's a really um, crucial issue. So obviously Australia has a historical alliance with um, the US, um, but has, um, you know, China as, you know, incredibly important to our economy. So we're sort of, 
stuck in this place where we're culturally misaligned with China. In I shouldn't say culturally, I should say um, democratically misaligned with China. We've got a very different you know, political system. Um, but then we're aligned with the US, but that's kind of complicated because it would be easier to, you know, back Obama or someone, whereas Trump is just becoming more uh, less predictable by the day. Um, so I think the big question is how we resolve those two things. Now, one interpretation of Morrison, the Morrison government's commitment to Iran is they're trying to basically side with the US so that on something bigger down the track, let's say what we do about, you know, um, the tampering of dissent in, in Hong Kong. So one, they might be sort of hedging their bets there or they might be um, reassuring the US that they're, they're, they're still um, deeply committed to that um, alliance. But mm. it brings together um, an enormous range of issues. And then I think in terms of students, um, I think it's really interesting that Bob Hawke, um, after Tiananmen, did um, something I think that was quite remarkable. One, he expressed great empathy with the victims of t- the Tiananmen massacre, and he did it as Hawke did for many things in a mm. very, very effective way. But then even more consequentially, he um, allowed uh, many who were, you know, I guess in, in, in a value sense aligned with the Tiananmen um, uh, protesters to, to remain in Australia and he gave them visas. And actually, so one of the largest upticks in Chinese immigration to Australia was actually following Tiananmen because Bob Hawke was so committed to that issue. Now, the reason I raise that is because I really can't imagine Morrison responding in the same way as Hawke did, okay? And you mm. might say, well, there's more at stake now or whatever the case is. Um, but it, it, is, it is a really important question. If Beijing, let's say, fired on protesters, and I think there was some, the first live bullet overnight, but, you know, there's still nothing major yet. If um, Beijing did that, how did the Australian government respond, right? And that, mm. that to me is like one of the, um, you know, one of the, the biggest questions of the moment. Yeah, I, honestly, we probably can't guess and I'd hate crystal ball gazing anyway but yeah it is a great question to ask and particularly with this continuing conflict and even seeing the conflict happening in Melbourne you know with the protests at the state library Mm -hmm. and um, you know there's certainly been uh, police required (laughs) to keep both sides apart that's right Um, and it is interesting to see how far that's going to escalate so as we know as we can now see you know something that's happening in Hong Kong is directly affecting domestic politics in Australia one of the things you've just mentioned there is um, the Strait of Hormuz and Mm -hmm. Australia has um, signaled that they are going to help America in this Mm. quest. For those who haven't been following this um, much, Mm. could you share with us why Australia has decided to kind of head back in to, uh, obviously it's not a war necessarily, but a lot of people have said that Australia doesn't necessarily have a huge amount of interests Mm. in that actual shipping strait. Yeah, so I guess I'd make a couple of points. One, the reason that this problem has arisen is because the uh, Trump government decided to get out of the Iranian nuclear agreement. And they basically did that. Um, There were sort of two lines of reasoning. Um, One is that uh, it it would weaken the economy and it would mean that a collapse in the Iranian regime. Okay, so that was the kind of positive um, uh, scenario by the Trump administration because, you know, then there'd be a more democratic government. So that was one one scenario, the, the hopeful scenario, which... And then mm. there was this 
withdrawal is just going to embolden the hardliners, right? And that's exactly what has happened. And I think any uh, military person or any you know international relations specialist would have said to the Trump administration, that is by far the most likely outcome of what you're doing. So in, in, in a strange way, this is completely self-inflicted from, from the US administration and yeah. it's a quite a predictable, um, predictable outcome. So I think it's um, disappointing in a lot of ways in that if uh, the Iranians had have, or if the US had have remained party to that agreement, we just wouldn't be in this situation. So that's, that's one thing. Um, so... What has happened is the the hardliners have become emboldened, and now they're they're they're, they're lashing out in some senses. And then um, the Strait of Hormuz is actually a, a part of that. Um, so, I guess my interpretation of Australia's involvement is kind of twofold. So, one, it might be a commitment to avoid a commitment that would be more diplomatically problematic down the road on, say, Hong Kong, right? So, it might be just avoiding, you know. Um, that that point where they're asked to um, support the Americans and they can say, well, we're not going to support you, because, but we did support you in Iran. So that, mm. that may be the strategy. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but I think the second point is that um, the, the, the government, I think, is signaling a commitment to the US or a continuing commitment to the US alliance. And I think that's the larger um, sort of subtext of this. Um, there are I mean, it's 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 called an international uh, agreement, and it's not, not really international. There's like three or four governments involved, so you know, it's not like a a broad coalition. Um, but I think a lot of it is about the politics of the of the U.S. alliance. Yeah, it is interesting to see that you know not too many countries are particularly lining up to mm-hmm. support the U.S. in this battle or issue at the moment and um, three countries the UK, Bahrain and Australia have agreed to partake at the moment Um, Germany has said no it's interesting now to see Australia and its relationship and how we are often getting caught in between certain groups and you know alliances Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of where you see the foreign policy issues moving maybe we can let's actually jump to brexit before i think i think let's just jump there right now sure um over the weekend we saw boris johnson and emmanuel macron and donald trump and angela merkel all gathering together in a beautiful seaside area in um, france Mm -hmm. and uh, they really had some interesting tensions going on Um, but one of the things that a lot of people picked up on and perhaps it was really a storm in the teacup but um, was boris johnson putting his feet on a table in the palace Mm -hmm. french palace when he met emmanuel macron but a lot of people are saying this is kind of a way that he's uh, exerting his type of leadership style, which is, mm. you know, his body language is macho. He's kind of acting like a mini Trump in a way, mm. in the way that he's, um, you know, discussing things with leaders. Um, but what I thought was particularly interesting was that when um, we heard this discussion uh, between Boris Johnson and Angela Merkel, people immediately jumped on what Angela Merkel said when they were asking about the Irish backstop, which has been really the major sticking point for this um, issue of Brexit, getting a deal instead of a no deal by October 31. Um, Angela Merkel said, oh, well, you know, we could find uh, an, a solution to the backstop, an alternative solution than the one we currently have in two years. Mm-hmm. Or it could be 30 days. And then, of course, the BBC and every other UK journalist decided to say, oh, wow, we could find a solution in 30 days. Mm. Um, I, 
it, it kind of exemplifies, I guess, where we're at now with Brexit, doesn't it? Well, I think it is a cautionary tale. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a cautionary tale in, in terms of like following the media. And one of the reasons I don't read the media on a daily basis is because of this. Yeah. Um, so um, I think, as you mentioned in your uh, introduction to the show, I just returned from eight weeks in London where I was at King's College. Um, and so I got to observe that. Um, firsthand. And one thing I'd say is that, you know, it's my, I guess, my um, the mode of operation to ask smart people about things. And so I was speaking to, you know, British politics professors, people in government, and everyone just said, we don't know where this ends up. So they had said, we'd made so many predictions in the past, and we just don't know where this ends up. Um, the other thing I'd say is that Lyndon Baines Johnson, the American president, said the first rule of politics is to know how to count. Okay, and uh, Boris Johnson just doesn't have the numbers, so I can't really see um, a pathway forward in terms of achieving um, Brexit. And the reason I mention all of that because I guess it gets to what you're talking about, which is you know put your feet up, unconventional style. He's a smart person; he knows what he's doing when he puts his feet mm. up at you know at a, in a meeting with Macron. Um, so I think his strategy is, and I think he knows he doesn't have the numbers. By the way, um, is to do it via some other means, right? So that could uh, that he could achieve that a couple of ways. He could shut down Parliament. Um, he could have an election now. <laughs> All of those, I think, are pro- I think are all bound to fail. Mm. But I think he's just arrived at a point um, that there is nothing to lose. So he's got this very unconventional style. I think there's a lot more thought to the strategy than, let's say, you know, Trump, because I think he's a bit more forward thinking than than that. Um, but. I actually think there's no path forward. So he has to basically clown his way out of this. And he's, you know, pretty good at doing that, obviously. Um, the public opinion is still hugely divided on the issue. No one's really moved. Um, there's a majority, I think, opposition against a no-deal Brexit. But beyond that, there's very little um, consensus. So um, I think he's, he's, he's decided to pursue this very unconventional style that, you know, is represented in. And that's where, you know, the gesture probably means something a bit more than just the, the, the ephemera of politics. Mm. Um, he's actually decided to pursue this um, very unconventional style. Um, I, I think personally it's going to all end in tears, right, because I just think all of the odds are stacked against him. He can't – the EU won't accept what he wants. His party won't accept what he wants, right? So I think he's going to find it very difficult. Mm. And I guess the um, – uh, really unfortunate aspect of this is it is quite possible the the, the United Kingdom breaks up, right? So um, that that is one eventuality because Scotland might decide to to, to leave and you know, side with the EU, and then there's you know, obviously yeah the Irish backstop in Northern Ireland and all of that. Um, so I guess the worst case scenario is that this is actually the end of the the United Kingdom. Now I think it's far too <laughs> early to say that, um, but it is an eventuality, and I don't think Johnson's helping that in any way. Yes. No, I wouldn't say so either. Um, Just finally, people have said and floated the idea of a no-confidence motion in Boris Johnson's leadership and, Mm -hmm. you know, people have said, well, why don't the Liberal Democrats and Labor band together and, you know, have a caretaker government, get Mm -hmm. rid of um, Boris and have an election and then Mm -hmm. we can resolve this all, take Mm -hmm. this back to the electorate. It doesn't seem particularly likely because the Liberal Democrats and Labor don't seem to want to cooperate many times ever. Although there is, and there are some you know, obviously Tories who are not necessarily on the side of no deal, Brexit is great yep. or better than a bad deal, as we've been hearing. What mm. What are your thoughts and ideas on that? Yeah, so um, 
I think this is all very uh, this is a very uh, complicated set of scenarios. So if you had a very effective labor opposition, none of this would be a problem, mm. right? So I think a lot of I think that's a it's it's slightly unlikely in the sense that people find it very hard to get behind Corbyn. Um, so in a different scenario where you had sort of mainstream sort of you know uh, you know. Uh, Prime Minister, or sorry, opposition leader like Blair or Gordon Brown or whoever it was, I think people would find it very, very easy to get behind that leader and maybe play out the scenario that you've um, just outlined. I think a lot of it is just the reluctance um, to get behind um, to behind Corbyn and the underlying issue that the the public are divided about this. So you look at public mm. opinion, you know, um, on the day of the referendum, and you look at public opinion um, now. It has changed barely at all, right? So the Remainers want to remain and the Leavers want to still leave, okay? So that dynamic hasn't gone away. So I think it will when, let's say, there's a no-deal Brexit and the economy goes south, and then I think obviously the Leavers will say, actually, this does matter. Um, But until that point, I think people remain in their fixed position. So the the path of the scenario that you outline would be to have an election and then maybe have a second referendum or something like that, but that is all also complicated by the fact that we still have a very, very polarised country in many yes. ways. Yes, it's not like um, opinion has really drastically shifted and people have now, you know, decided 75% of the country don't want Brexit. Exactly. It's a lot more complex than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Aaron, thank you so much for coming in. It's been fascinating to chat with you about politics and I really appreciate your expertise. Great. It was really great to be here. That's great. I've been speaking with Dr Aaron Martin. He's a senior lecturer in political science and also a co-director of the Policy Lab at the University of Melbourne. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. And, of course, this second uh, interview for today's show is what I think is really a very important discussion that we need to be having. And I I really can't think of a better person to be having this conversation with in terms of the expertise that Jess has amassed in terms of her reporting as an investigative journalist, but also... The research that she's done for this book is immense and every page screams out to me and it is somewhat distressing to read, but it's necessary, of course, in terms of understanding this issue, which is very complex and perhaps can often be reduced to uh, stereotyping and a lot of misconceptions that we might have. So Jess Hill is joining me via Skype and we're going to be speaking about her new book, See What You Made Me Do, Power, Control and Domestic Abuse. It's It's published by Black Ink and uh, Jess joins me now and I welcome you now there. Hi, Jess. G'day, Amy. How are you going? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, really good. Um, So, um, well, I've got to say, first of all, this book is... It probably took words out of my mouth when I read it. I honestly was my probably my mouth was on the floor uh, mm-hmm. reading it, and that's coming from a person myself who has worked in the gender equality space in particular for many years. Mm-hmm. And I've got to say, this is one of the most useful and groundbreaking books I've read on this issue. So thank you, first of uh-huh. all, for writing it. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, well, that feeling of having your mouth on the floor. That's what I had every other day for, you know, three and a half years um, when I was writing it. And 
I think, you know, when you're writing about this kind of subject material, which has been written about at least in the last few years a lot, uh, it, you do have to reach that bit deeper for what is going to be compelling. And I think the I really made a rule that I wanted to write for people who had no idea about domestic abuse and didn't think they knew anyone who'd been through it, which, of course, we, we all know is not true. Um and for people who'd been studying this for years, uh, which is a broad audience. <laughs> and, um, yes. and to do that, you had to, I had to really uh, both interrogate sort of old ideas that we'd just come to accept, but also really only include the stuff that after three and a half years was still surprising me mm. um, and was still really switching me on. So that's why I think in the end I'm really surprised by how many people have said they've read the book like a novel because I thought that, they would like pick up one chapter and just go, oh, I can't read any more of that for another week. You know? Yes. <laughs> I can understand that, yeah, that, that might be some people's response. And I did mention just before the announcements that um, some of the things that we'll discuss might be triggering for people who've experienced abuse or assault physically, emotionally, sexually. So um, if anyone is listening and they need to tune out because of the content, um, it's obviously okay and uh, they can come back in whenever they need. But yeah, it is such an important conversation to have. Before we jump right into it, I just wanted to highlight how I first came across you and your work, which was through the ABC and your work as a foreign correspondent. Ah, yeah, that feels like a lifetime ago. Yeah. I just remember um, Mark Colvin being a really important person um, to you, I I guess, looking on from Twitter and listening on ABC, PM and AM. And I wonder, you know, going to uh, sometimes war zones would have been quite confronting and would have its own issues. But in terms of also this topic, I wonder whether there's also similar levels of emotional toll that that this kind of work Mm -hmm. might take. Yeah, I guess, you know, in the Middle East, um, you know, I was in lots of riots and um, and places that had experienced enormous traumas. But you were always connecting directly with people. And I guess the other thing was it, it wasn't it wasn't a trauma that belonged to me in any way. I was a foreigner in somebody else's country trying to make sense of what was going on for people back home or, you know, for, for readers. Um, I guess with domestic abuse, what is so confronting is that everything that you're looking at does belong to you it's it's in us you know we all have the capacity for great cruelty although you know thankfully a lot of us don't um, exert it but we also all have our own struggles with power and control in our relationships we all have struggles with intimacy we we've all experienced the types of things that can lead to an abusive relationship we've all been in in gray zones i'm sure you know anyone who's had a few relationships has had those you know creeping feelings that something's not right or that there's a power imbalance and we've all experienced you know the effects of male entitlement um and i would say that you know Men too, a lot of men too have experienced the effects of male entitlement because it doesn't only affect women. Um, and so I guess, you know, in trying to interrogate that landscape, it meant that I had to look really deep into my own character and the character of my marriage and my husband's character and my family's character 
and look and try to really interrogate it from the inside out, even though I don't have a personal history with domestic abuse. Um, although, you know, as I discovered, actually there's domestic abuse threaded um, throughout my um, family, you know, going back a couple of generations and has affected a lot of my friends, things that I didn't know before I started writing about this. But that personal interrogation was actually one of the most confounding and I guess disturbing elements of it and, you know, being married and writing a book about domestic abuse that you're writing pretty much full-time for almost four years, that's not – it's not, like, recommended no. <laughs> for a healthy marriage because when you're writing about, you know, not only, you know, sexual assault, violence, um, but also that thing about male entitlement, the effects of patriarchy, all those things you're constantly looking for, well, how do I see that cropping up in my own relationship? And you don't really mm. want to have that lens on your relationship for that long. So I found it much more difficult to write about this than I ever did, you know, writing or reporting on the Middle East. Mm, that does make a lot of sense. And I think it would be difficult for any reader reading this book to not constantly reflect on their relationships and their families' relationships and people they know and mm. to start to question whether there is a lot of things that we aren't seeing that perhaps even our friends don't tell us is happening. Mm. Uh, because as you, there's so many things that um, are debunked in this book, but one of them is this idea that it only happens to a certain group of people from, you know, certain socioeconomic backgrounds or education levels. And these are all, you know, misconceptions that many people might have about who is affected directly by domestic abuse. But first, could we address the terminology? Because you do that straight away in your book Mm -hmm. and say that you've deliberately chosen the the term uh, domestic abuse instead of domestic violence or family violence, which are often commonly used in this space by government and and um, community groups. What was your rationale and thinking behind that change? So it happened quite late and I felt a real resistance to changing the term in the book from domestic violence to domestic abuse. I'd seen that the uh, police in the UK regularly used domestic abuse um, as a term, but it wasn't until I read this opinion piece from Yasmin Khan, who wrote, uh, she runs Eadfest Community Services in Brisbane, and she wrote this article basically saying that many of the women that they supported, um, and they, you know, support particularly um, Muslim women from the subcontinent, that they would assure her that there'd never been any domestic violence because he'd never laid a hand on me. But when they'd ask more questions about the relationship, they'd find out that 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 woman had been abused in some of the most horrific ways for years, in ways that were just as damaging and potent because it was about control, domination, humiliation, degradation, threats, um, and a total limit on that woman's autonomy. And, And so Khan really made it her mission to replace domestic violence with domestic abuse because if we just talk about violence, we're sending a message that there's only a serious issue when there's been something when something physical has occurred. And mm. I would be asked so often, whenever I do sort of panels or appear in public talking about this, there'd always be at least one question from the audience saying, how are you going to deal with the fact that a lot of domestic abuse is not physical? And I'd sort of, I'd, you know, talk around the answer and I'd, I'd give what I thought was a reasonable response, but it was all, it always didn't feel like enough. Mm. And this is how I felt, this is enough. This is actually what we need to do because we don't talk about 
child violence because child abuse takes in all sorts of different things, especially things like neglect. And it's not just about the physical violence. And the same way for domestic violence, you know, at the core of domestic violence, it's not physical violence. Really at the core of domestic violence or domestic abuse is humiliation and degradation. That That is the core around which everything happens. The physical violence is just another way of imposing that on the victim. And it's, it's just a tool. And it's a tool that not all perpetrators use. So there's plenty of perpetrators who will use... Um, who will just use incredibly sophisticated methods of humiliation and degradation um, and, and mind games, and they will get the effect they want, which is a woman who doesn't really know herself anymore, who has no sense of or very little sense of self-worth, and who basically has taken in or has, has replaced her own perspective with her perpetrator's perspective so that every every move that she makes, she's trying to think, Will he be okay with that? What will he think of this? Will there will there be any consequences if I do that? And over time, she just be, she just starts to inhabit the perpetrator and lose a sense of who she is and what she wants. I mean, what she wants is not only inconsequential; it's actually dangerous because what she wants could provoke another either controlling or violent response. Um, so, I really wanted to make send a message to all of those women for whom either the physical violence was not present or it wasn't important to say that you are included, this affects you, and we know that the violence is not the most important part. And I think there's one quote that I didn't actually end up including in the book, weirdly enough, but I actually think it summarises the entire book, and it comes from the Talmud, and it says, humiliation is worse than physical pain. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's certainly really interesting. And some of the women that you quote directly from the interviews that you've undertaken would often say that, um, yeah, that wasn't the main thing. And although the physical, if there was physical violence, it was in some cases very extreme. It was Mm. other elements that were more front of mind or more affecting and more um, catastrophic in a way than that, which is the most visible. Yeah, and it took longer for them to overcome. And, you know, and everybody says this, the women who work in domestic violence shelters or work in advocacy work, they say that the women overwhelmingly, the counselling work they do with women is to is to overcome the effects of humiliation and degradation and fear. Um, the physical wounds, I mean, sometimes the physical wounds are permanent and terrible. I mean, I'm not discounting mm. the physical violence in domestic abuse one iota, um, but you know, there's just you, – you just hear the same thing from women over and over again. That's that's not what ended up almost destroying me. Um, and not to mention the fact that you also hear from women saying, I actually wish he'd just hit me. So then other people would believe it was happening, but also so then she would believe it was happening. And that's why, you know, perpetrators who don't use violence, they don't use violence for a reason because when violence, when physical violence occurs, it's like a warning bell. The psychological violence flies under the radar. It's that proverbial frog in the boiling pot effect. It just gets warmer and warmer and warmer until you realise that you're boiling and it's and now it's really dangerous. And for women in these situations, the degradation, the humiliation, 
it just keeps on going, but it, it starts small and then it grows and grows and grows until you don't even realize it's happening anymore. And if you've been isolated from your supportive connections, you don't necessarily talk to people about it. And if they, and if you do, maybe they don't quite believe you because, hey, the guy seems quite fine outside of the relationship. So you start to really doubt what's happening to you and you don't even know if it qualifies as domestic abuse. And I can tell you, like, I have so many women coming up to me at public events that I'm doing saying, you just described my partner. And either they'll then describe a situation that absolutely qualifies as domestic abuse and, you know, we talk about what the next steps that they might take. Or they describe a situation that has all of the red flags but but maybe isn't domestic abuse just yet and maybe never will be um, in the sense that, you know, the guy might be sabotaging her work prospects, might be making it really difficult for her to see friends, might be threatening suicide, all of these things that are tick, tick, tick in domestic abuse. She doesn't feel unsafe though and she doesn't think that he would ever escalate but it's this weird grey zone where you're like, well, it sounds like abuse and it is abusive behaviour but is it something that would warrant calling police or leaving? I don't know. Sometimes it's really hard to say. And when I was writing the book, I was absolutely dead set against the idea that there was any type of grey zone yeah, that it was all. It was either or. It was you were or you weren't. And I've since learnt that's just not the case. And that's really what women experience. Indeed. And to put this into a bit of context and perspective uh, for people who are wondering about the scale of the issue, I mean, you raise in the book the fact that it is very difficult to have reliable statistics on a range of things. And because we're relying on people who actually do end up reporting the things they experience. So often people don't report what's happened to them. And so we're possibly not seeing the full picture and scale of what is happening in Australia. But you quote some important statistics of what we do know, which is that in every country around the world, the home is the most dangerous place for a woman and that of 87,000 women killed globally in 2017, more than a third were killed by an intimate partner plus another 20,000 were killed by a family member. And in Australia, who we currently have a population of around 25 million, one woman a week is killed by a man she's been intimate with. So, I mean, that kind of, I think, highlights that things are serious and they're only getting more serious um, in terms of the other stats you raise around seeing an increase in domestic abuse incidents by 83% in just five years. It seems to have become more and more urgent, even though it's been around, as you highlight through this book, for centuries. Yeah, and I guess, you know, it's important to distinguish the increase um, in reports, which has been happening that, you know, 83% is a, a an increase in reports to police. And now, you know, on any given day, Victoria Police say that they're dealing with 40 to 60%, um, of 40 to 60% of their work is dealing with domestic abuse call-outs. But also, you know, what you're citing as well there is what I heard from domestic violence helplines and, um, and from people working in this area that they actually have data to show that the incidence and severity of the assaults is getting worse and that there are a, there's a greater percentage of the women who are calling who are in need of emergency assistance. So what they're sort of looking at is that there's something going on where 
it's the the nature of the violence is getting worse. Yeah. And I'm really interested in highlighting something that you do early on in the book to give us some perspective, which is this fascinating and quite disturbing example you provide around this issue that occurred in the Korean War and we saw American prisoners of war really change drastically in their time um, which in which they were held in captivity and quite differently from um, some of the other situations we've seen in other wars for in other countries and the types of methods used by the the people holding them captive are so similar to domestic abuse that it was used as this very important case study and a grounding of understanding how coercion and control um, works. Could you share with us that example? Yeah, sure. So Basically, yeah, I mean, this, this type of domestic abuse, remembering that domestic abuse isn't all the same, mm. there's a type of domestic abuse that we now call coercive control. Um, and that's the kind of abuse where domination and control, isolation, micromanagement of behaviour, this is all part of a system that the perpetrator uses to eradicate uh, their partner's self-worth and, and to keep them under a kind of control. And the first time that we ever had that system really outlined was by a social scientist with the US Air Force uh, in the 1950s. And the reason that we got this information was that because US soldiers who were taken prisoner in the Korean War were taken to North Korean camps run by Chinese communists, and they started cooperating with their captors in ways that was utterly unprecedented. They were informing on fellow prisoners. They were, uh, you know, going on radio and um, extolling the virtues of communism and decrying Western capitalism. I mean, all of these things were utterly unheard of. Other prisoner of war situations, uh, the soldiers would be staunch. They would refuse to cooperate in any way. And there were a lot of very serious codes about that. Not to mention the fact that after the war was over, a number of American soldiers actually defected to communist China. So there was this absolute panic uh, among the American populace, among the media, but also at the you know the highest levels of the CIA that the um, that the Chinese communists and the Soviets had some form of magical brainwashing, um, and they had basically replaced the soldiers' thoughts with with their own sort of design, with their own information. And and they started sort of talking about, you know, developing these weapons themselves. It got to a really extreme level. This social scientist, um, Albert Biederman, looked at it and just went, that doesn't make any sense. This sounds like propaganda, not science. And so he went and talked to the returned servicemen about what they'd experienced in these camps. And he got the same basic story from all of them that essentially when they were first captured, the um, the captors would come up to them, slap them on the back, call them comrades, say that they were for the workers of America, hand them cigarettes, make them feel that even though they were being captured by who they thought to be the enemy, they were going to be looked after and it was okay. That was about establishing trust. Then they got taken to the camps and there are eight different but quite um, clear techniques that were used against these soldiers. Obviously, isolation was the first one. But then there was this thing where they would monopolise their perception. They would basically make them look inwards as to what was going on 
for them how they were creating this situation in a strange way that I'll explain in a minute. Um, then there was the um, alternating with uh, punishments with rewards, threats, degradation, demonstrating omnipotence, so basically demonstrating that no matter where that the soldier went, whether they escaped from the camp, whether they were back in America, they would never be safe and their friends and family would never be safe. And it was this basically slow way of messing with the soldiers' minds between thinking that the that their captors were for them and that they were going to protect them and then slowly eradicating their sense of self-worth to the point where they had to capitulate, that the, the, the price of resisting would be greater than the price of capitulation. Um, and that's how they got them to cooperate to this unprecedented extent. Now, when in the 80s or well, like sort of, sort of late 70s, after the um, domestic violence shelters were opened, the women who were coming to these shelters started telling these stories, not just of, you know, broken bones and black eyes, but of these systematic campaigns of control. And it wasn't until about the early 80s when somebody pulled out Albert Biederman's chart of coercion. It detailed these eight techniques that have been used in the camps in North Korea. And they looked at the common techniques that domestic violence survivors would describe, and they were almost identical. And what we've since discovered is actually the tactics used by um, coercive controllers in domestic abuse are basically identical to the tactics used by cult leaders, by pimps, by um, by certain um, cap certain prisoner of war camps. They're all the same, and it's basically what is necessary to gain power over another person. And so. I think one of the things that struck me when you were giving this example and using it as a way into this subject was that there was really one thing that demonstrated that in many of these cases, and the majority of the cases, it's the woman who is on the end of this behaviour and and they're in this relationship, um, it's often an intimate partner relationship. And one of those sticking points or one of those things that is so um, even more concerning and difficult in this, the situation of an intimate relationship is that the first stage, which was about in the in the case of war there, you know, establishing um, trust and saying, hi there, comrade, and, you know, building a sense of familiarity and maybe mm -hmm. a false sense of friendship, this was even greater for women in an intimate relationship because there was an establishment of love, of sentiment, of trust, of um, emotion and, you know, a personal investment in the relationship for a number of perhaps days, months, years, depending on the situation. <laughs> and, um, and that, as you've said in the book, and what really struck me was showed just how resilient and strong the women are that they have that to contend with in this particular power dynamic. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it's they have no clue that the person that they're dealing with is is a potential enemy. That's very different from soldiers being taken captive. And even soldiers found it almost impossible to resist um, the, the techniques of coercive control. And I think what, you know, what we forget with um, with women in these situations is is how we are when we first go into an intimate relationship. We give away a lot. We have to in order to bring that person into our space and to really, like, connect with that person. We are excited about the future with them. We share things with them that we may not have shared with anybody before. You know, we create this sense of oneness 
right, where that person becomes like our other half. It's what we say, that they're our other half. So mm. when your other half, when the person you have led in, not just to your bed and to your home, but into your soul, into your heart, starts behaving like an enemy, the first thing you're going to do is probably disbelieve it or think there's a way, it's an aberration and there's a way to fix it because yeah. that's not the person you fell in love with, right? And it can take women years, months, years, maybe, maybe it will never occur to them that actually it's not an aberration, that behaviour, that is a part of that person that may or may not ever be reformed and that love won't be enough. They won't be able to fix that person unless that person does the work to fix themselves. And so many women will look at these relationships like projects. And, and what's even worse is that the stronger a woman is, sometimes the more that she will identify with using her personal strength to help him overcome his abusiveness. Mm -hmm. And that then becomes a tool for the perpetrator. And when I say a tool, a lot of this stuff, I mean, there are some perpetrators who are very conscious about what they're doing, but they're a minority a lot of this stuff is coming on a level of instinct, even though the people, the men who are conscious of what they're doing and the men who are less conscious of what they're doing actually do the same things. The level of consciousness is, is really important to understand um, because a lot of this is behavior, not necessarily tactics, you know, um, and they may start to act tactically when they feel like they're about to be left or the woman's about to cheat on them, which is, you know, a morbid paranoia held by a lot of these types of men. But actually it's coming from this place for a lot of guys um, of, of fear, of a sense that they will be disrespected and of a deep found, a deep felt sense of entitlement so deep they would never be able to name it as entitlement. But the, basically the sense that they should be able to do whatever they need to in order to secure their partner and to secure what they want. And whether their partner wants it or not, doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, and that's, I mean, the level of entitlement that is present in perpetrators is um, is almost to the level of, you know, of being pathological. I mean, that the entitlement is so enormous. Um, and it's something that sometimes when we're talking about, oh, you know, let's try and understand the men who are doing this, let's understand them as having their own wounds and all the rest of it, it's really important that we don't forget that that part is deeply connected to their sense of entitlement to use violence or abuse in order to get what they think is due to them. Mm. And when we're talking about um, the victims or and or survivors, really they're both. Um, we you you cite some really interesting examples, and I guess you share an overview of how the perception of the victim has evolved and changed over time. And uh, it's quite disturbing, really. I mean, of course, typically Sigmund Freud comes up, and as he does <laughs> always. Exactly, and and I'm a little bit dismayed that he comes up so often in in other things that I um, research and study in a serious way because uh, obviously some of his um, theories were really damaging and still are damaging. But one of those things that um, was really interesting to me was this 
evolution of the woman as initially the passive damsel in distress who's just dealing with a, perhaps a drunken husband who comes home and, you know, beats his wife. Then it moves into this Freudian theory around uh, women being masochistic. Uh, I'd mm. really like for you to explain that theory and then how it moved on again and how that is actually directly impacting us today and and has been in the past because I I hadn't really been aware that it had shifted over time and it had really reflected some of these key moments in psychological theory. Yeah, well that's why, you know, the name of your program um, is really good because this whole thing of uncommon sense um, is something that I really try to highlight in the book is that mm. like we think that we are responding to situations with our common sense and so common sense is just an instinct and it's utterly natural and that you know that we must follow this common sense um, because it's 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 you know it's the most natural way to respond to something but actually our common sense is something that's been built for us by people like Freud by filmmakers by other cultural um, you know um, you know, writers, songwriters, other cultural products, and what we what we come out with is actually uncommon sense. Um, <laughs> it's actually constructed brick by brick for us. And I guess you know the the move from the damsel in distress, who was by the way still probably provoking her husband, was the you know general sense mm. was really so in the nineteenth century and and you know prior to that, where men were really cast as these drunken louts who would use incredible brutality against their their wives um, and that these wives lived lives of Dickensian misery. Um, That was a – so at that time, you know, women didn't really feel like there was much choice. It was a very rare woman who would pick up and leave, and if she did, she could kiss goodbye to her children because the fathers had ultimate custodial rights over the children. So it was a huge deal for a woman to leave a situation, and the vast majority didn't. But – in the early 20th century, women started to go to social workers and say that they'd had enough because there was this sort of, you know, the beginning of that first wave of feminism, women were fighting for the vote. And a big part of fighting for the vote was about fighting for autonomy. It was about getting a way, uh, finding a way to be autonomous from their husbands and, and independent women. It was a big part of the suffragette movement. And so they started to sort of really front up and say, well, I've had enough. I'm not going to put up with this. I'm going to leave him. And, you know, it's hard to say chicken and the egg. I mean, Freud's theories had been around for a while, but social workers started to pick up on the Freudian theory of women's masochism uh, and basically started to frame these women as having wanted their secretly wanted their abuse unknown even to themselves were secretly gratified by their abuse because they actually were the the controlling and domineering ones and they felt like the abuse was their just desserts i mean it is utterly crazy but this theory of women's masochism that actually they secretly like it really stuck around until the 1970s and is still in a lot of people's minds when people when women say they don't leave Mm. or they haven't left or they've kept on going back or whatever, a lot of people will still say, oh, she just likes the drama. Oh, she secretly likes it, you know. I mean, there's there's a lot of misconception. And when people look at that woman's behaviour, sometimes they think, well, I'm, seeing, I'm looking at a behaviour and that's obvious. And it's only obvious because you've got that lens on it and that lens comes from a certain place. And the social workers that were really putting that lens on the women, a lot of it was because they were threatening the nuclear family. And that was 
basically ground zero. I mean, that's ground zero for the patriarchy. Like the nuclear family is where the man has absolute ultimate control. And if women are going to try to challenge that and say, no, I'm going to leave, that is so threatening to the basic building blocks of society that it just it just had to be stamped out. And that mm-hmm. was an instinctive move on. I mean, you know, social workers weren't weren't thinking in lines of the patriarchy and how to protect it, but it was an instinctive move from them to then demonise the women. And then in the 70s, along came uh, Lenore Walker, a psychologist, and a whole new theory, which she called battered women's syndrome or battered woman syndrome. And, um, and she also came up with this idea of the cycle of violence, which was this whole, you know, how violence would work in a relationship, that it would be, you know, build, 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 explosion, apology, false honeymoon, remorse, back to normal, build, 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 and so forth, from, you know, all around the cycle. And that cycle itself was trapping because the false honeymoon and the remorse part was what drew, drew women back in. Now, that cycle of violence does apply to a lot of relationships, but the battered woman syndrome that Lenore Walker described was essentially she, she compared women to dogs who had been experimented on who, were, who would go to uh, – they were in an enclosure, they would go to the fence and they would get an electric shock. And they would get the electric shock so many times before they stopped looking for the fence and stopped looking for a way out. And eventually the dogs forgot how to even escape. Even if the door was open to them, they wouldn't go to it for fear that they'd be shocked. That was a defence that lawyers used for women who killed their husbands. It became a a really um, influential idea on what happened to women, that they basically became passive, helpless creatures in these relationships. And, I mean, that was was an improvement (laughs) on masochism, (laughs) but it was it didn't really challenge the status quo and that's why it was so popular because mm-hmm. it still cast women as helpless victims what yeah. happened afterwards was actual research with women <laughs> fancy that um uh looking at their actual behaviors in these relationships and the theory that really came after battered women syndrome was survivor theory and was based on interviews with thousands of women in um in shelters in texas and what it depicted was that actually what women were experiencing domestic abuse relationships was an ongoing war of survival where every minute was something they had to get through. Mm. And basically what no one had been talking about was the nature of women's resistance. And women's resistance in relationships could be violent, it could be nonviolent, it could be passive-aggressive, it could be any type of any way that they could exhibit some sort of resistance to what was being done to them. And that actually they sought help all the time. They sought help from friends, family, social services, police, hospitals, and those people repeatedly failed them. And it wasn't the electric shock they were getting that made them forget how to get out. It was the fact that when they did try either to get out or to seek help, they were constantly turned down, disappointed, disbelieved, even put in greater danger so that they knew that the only person that they could rely on was themselves to find their own safety and that sometimes the best safety they could get was inside the relationship because actually the danger would escalate if they left. So that was that was really – that's where we are now really. This survivor theory is the most relevant to the actual experience 
of women um, that actually what they do is they do their best to survive. They do their best, you know, in most cases to help their children survive and they use whatever means are at their disposal to do that. Um, and, you know, in amongst that, there is all sorts of other factors around love and around loyalty and around, you know, that, that complicate and make things more difficult. But ultimately, they are not suffering from some kind of pathology. They are women who have found themselves in incredibly difficult and dangerous situations that may have sprung up overnight and they are doing their best to survive them. Mm. And you talk about the fact and you've referenced there that there are so many different forms of resistance and, you know, a lot of it presumably plays out internally, um, you know, every day of someone's life when they're in this situation. Um, One of the examples that I really found affecting was the example of um, the trauma surgeon and how her child really was so caught up in this and even though she was abused in many ways including sexually assaulted so regularly um, it was also you know her child that was the thing she was particularly concerned by and what she still has to focus on daily and I'm interested in Mm -hmm. the the like particularly that example and what it illustrates about the complexity of this issue and the types of um, decision-making and processes that women have to go through, particularly with the legal system the way it is, because you also say that she, you know, being uh, she's a doctor and Mm. she essentially now is impoverished um, because of the legal fees, because of the fact that she continually has to protect herself. I'm really interested in some of the examples that you provide in this book that really illuminate just how complex this kind of issue is. Yeah, sure. So that that example, the woman I call Sarah in the book, yeah, she was a um, she was a doctor who was married to a man who was, you know, charismatic, loving, um, a total advocate for female empowerment, everything that you know would would be um, telling you that the relationship is something to invest in and um, she fell pregnant and overnight he changed and he didn't just change into someone who was a bit insecure, needy, maybe a bit abusive. He changed into someone who was an absolute tyrant. Um, and over time it's like he basically got triggered into a into a space where he needed to be he needed to be the patriarch in the family. He, needed to be in control um he used threats and sexual violence against her almost relentlessly he raped her in labor twice um and then when her baby was born she was you know she had a lot of health issues and she had to be on oxygen at home and he had this sense that well nothing would be wrong with my baby um and he would make it difficult for her to call um, ambulances. He would turn off her breathing monitor machine. I mean, the sorts of behaviour that is just incredibly dangerous um, for starters, but also just something that this woman, Sarah, had to put up with and had to try to get through every day. Um, Now, being a strong and intelligent woman, Sarah treated Carl, her partner, almost like a psych patient. 
So he made, she made sure that he never had anything to worry about. He'd have it prepared for him. He'd be able to go to the gym to let off steam. You know, she thought that if he, she could just manage the situation, that he would return back to the person that she knew before, that this was just some like almost psychotic break that he was experiencing. And it wasn't until there was a, um, as a week that started with, there was a Q&A program on domestic abuse and they were talking about the women who'd been killed that year. And he started ranting and raving saying those women deserved it. It's their, you know, it's the men that they were with who were the real victims. And, you know, this is a man who was in counselling at the time, was receiving treatment. I mean, she was doing everything right. She told everyone about it, doctors, nurses, psychologists. There was no secrecy about it. She went to the psychologist that he was seeing and explained what had happened. And he said, oh, I think a lot of men would have been upset about what happened on Q&A that night. I think it's, you know, the behaviour is not abnormal. But she was so alarmed by it, she reported it to police. And then within a week, their their young girl, their little girl who was uh, still a baby, was crying really unusually at night, wouldn't, just wouldn't settle. And at one point after trying to settle her, he jumped out of bed, jumped into the cot and started what, what um, Sarah could see on the baby monitor, started shaking the baby so violently that when Sarah saw it, she rushed into the room and what she saw was what she thought would, would have brought on an intracranial hemorrhage. Now, that night, she was so afraid of what he might do, she had to call the ambulance in secret Knowing that if she call, if he heard her calling the ambulance, she thought he he might kill them both. So she calls the ambulance, thinking that this is actually she's going to be sitting there holding her baby in her arms and having to say goodbye. And being a doctor, knowing how serious that that assault is, then she the ambulance comes. The baby thankfully is fine. Sarah leaves Carl, but she has to manage Carl afterwards. There's no it's not just a matter of leaving, it's a process of leaving. And it's not up to Sarah as to whether she gets to leave because it's up to Carl as to whether he will let her leave. So even though she's left the relationship, in the months following, she still has to facilitate contact between Carl and her little girl, supervised contact that's supervised by her parents, in order to try to keep him calm, to stop him from going to family court and trying to get custody because she knows that when men try to get custody through the family court, even when and, – and Carl registered a conviction for this assault on the child, but even when that's present, that's no guarantee that they won't get access to the child. And if that access is unsupervised, she's, you know, absolutely terrified that her little girl will end up being the next Darcy Freeman, mm-hmm. that, he, that she will lose it one day and he will end up just, you know, throwing her out of the car or doing something totally drastic. Um, so – that's something that she manages every day. She has to manage ongoing legal fees through the court cases that continue to spiral out of that relationship, such to the point where she's basically living on food vouchers, even as she gets work again um, in the medical profession. Now, as a result of all of this and what is not um, talked about in the book, but um, after publication, she's now in family court having to fight him for custody. It's costing her hundreds of thousands of dollars that she doesn't have. She's working Mm -hmm. insane work weeks just to try to pay the lawyers. So this is not just a situation that occurs in a relationship. It's a situation that occurs in a relationship, 
it occurs afterwards, it occurs through the legal system, it keeps going. For so many women, it keeps going. It may keep going for decades, even after the children are no longer young enough to be subject to a custody ruling. They will still, the men will still keep using the legal system in any way they can to try to trap their partners, to try to be part of their partners' lives, to try to keep this obsession going. It's just crushing for a lot of women. And that's that's the part, that's the very public part of domestic abuse that the public often doesn't recognise. Mm. I'm speaking with Jess Hill, who is an investigative journalist, and she's written this um, amazing book, See What You Made Me Do. And uh, we've been speaking about some really harrowing issues. So thank you for bearing with us. I do want to get to what is the crux of the book as well, which is really about a lot of people listening to this might wonder how on earth a, a human being could do this to another human being and why this happens and what the real solutions are because they seem to be really importantly interconnected and as you've highlighted you know of course uh, cultural change and social change takes a very long time in terms of social attitudes and stereotypes and the Victorian government for example has been uh, putting on ad campaigns around respecting women but there's a lot more that needs to be done beyond public awareness campaigns and I'd really like to to get to the nitty-gritty in terms of this idea of the solutions that perhaps we're not fully embracing or not realising might be um, where we should be directing our attention. So at the moment, the federal government, particularly through the fourth national action plan to reduce violence against women and their children, is really um, putting a lot of emphasis on primary prevention. And primary prevention is basically like what you described as, you know, the attempt to, um, to change attitudes and gendered norms within the community that are believed to underpin domestic abuse and that in doing so, we will actually, we will reduce the statistics over time but this is a very long project that may take decades to achieve. It is also quite experimental. It's not been done anywhere else to this extent. Even in the Scandinavian countries where there's better structural gender equality, the attempt to change norms, gendered norms, aren't being attempted in any way like what we're doing in Australia. So this is a an experimental model which is looking at basically fix, stopping violence before it starts. Um, and doing things like respectful relationships in schools and that sort of thing. I think that's absolutely vital work for Australia because actually that type of work is not just looking at, you know, problems around domestic abuse. It's looking at problems around bullying. It's looking at uh, problems around workplace harassment. I mean, these things are all interconnected. So this primary prevention work and this experiment that we're doing is absolutely um, groundbreaking, world-leading and important. But when it comes to the actual experience of violence that women, children and men are having right now, that primary prevention work doesn't promise to protect them in the short term at all. And really what the government has said um, with this last iteration of the action plan that they've just launched is that they've surrendered the idea of actually reducing domestic abuse in the short term and have jumped totally on the primary prevention train of saying that nothing will change, the statistics will not be reduced until we change our, um, the gendered norms in our culture, which is funny coming from a coalition government um, given their 
woman problem, as people have put it. <laughs> um, yeah, this is not this is not a party that we that we generally um, align with great strides in gender equality um, and treatment of women. So, but you know, that aside, what I cannot help coming back to is how do we help the women and children who are living in fear right now? What are we doing to, to make them safe? What do we do to stop basically them having to take responsibility for their own safety, which is essentially the position they're in now? It's up to them to call the police. It's up to them to figure out how to leave. It's up to them to do the leaving. It's up, you know, There's so much responsibility on them to, to create their own safety in situations that are so incredibly dangerous for them that it's hard for anybody to imagine just the level of threat that a lot of these people are living under unless they've lived with it themselves. Um, and just how, especially in coercive control, the perpetrator has demonstrated their omnipotence either through, you know, following them around or literally installing surveillance apps on their phones or GPS trackers in their cars, as was done in one refuge in Victoria, uh, it was seen that 80 to 85% of women who arrived had some kind of tracking device attached to them. The level of threat that these women are living with and children is absolutely off the scales. Now, the message that we're currently sending to perpetrators, especially through the very inconsistent justice response, is that if you're not so clumsy as to cause serious physical harm to your partner, you probably get away with it. And in fact, even if you do cause them serious harm, you're probably not going to be punished to any great extent, not, not to the point where, you, you know, your life is, is seriously hampered. You, you know, you got a good chance of getting away with it and of remaining invisible. That's what I want to see change. Um, and it's what a lot of people want to see change, obviously not just me. Mm. Um, and what we've seen in solutions that work and, I mean, even saying that, when I was re researching the book, so many people I spoke to and said, well, what works? What does produce domestic abuse right now? And so many people said nothing. We don't know of anything that works. We can't point to anywhere that has really significantly reduced domestic abuse. Now, that's actually just not true. I think that there, a lot of that there is a belief that we cannot stop perpetrators, that they're fundamentally irrational, and that there is no way to interrupt their offending. But actually... What we've seen in two examples, one locally here in Burke in New South Wales, which had one of the highest domestic violence rates um, in the state, but also overseas in a place called High Point, was that a community-led um, program and strategy that basically put domestic abuse as a number one priority. And in High Point, North Carolina, the police essentially declared domestic abuse the number one public safety threat when you get collaboration between the justice system, police, obviously, community sector, drug and alcohol, mental illness, homelessness sectors, domestic violence sectors, when everybody who is working on this issue, often in isolation, comes together and decides to prioritise it together, work together on individual cases, and where there's this kind of carrot and stick off it, where basically the community sector can say to the perpetrators, that we love and respect you and we want you to come back into the fold. We want you to be productive and, and welcome members of our community again. But if you don't stop your behaviour, then you are going to get a very swift and serious response from the justice system. 
And if that's a promise that they can keep because the justice system is on board, which is what happened in High Point, basically the justice system would prioritise cases of domestic abuse and would punish them to the extent, that the fullest extent of what they could manage, and even to the point where they would they would make other misdemeanours, they would, they would punish them for other misdemeanours, even parking fines or things like small-time crimes like larceny, they would get longer sentences for, all as a, as a attempt to create a consistent deterrent. But the point is you can't do, you can't fix domestic violence just through amped up policing or just through better community response. You need it all working in concert. And the fact is all of these different um, elements are actually working overtime on this issue already. When you put them together, they just become more effective and you actually see a reduction. So in High Point, for example, where they had this incredible program and, you know, and the the art of reconciling all of those sectors is something that took a couple of years. I mean, it takes a lot of work. I'm not suggesting you just shove them all in a room and hope that it'll work out. Um, but what they found is that they went from a city that had um, a domestic homicide rate that was much higher than the national average. They cut that domestic homicide rate by two thirds. In Burke, where they similarly had a situation where the community was teaming up with police to make perpetrators more visible, to be much more present um, at the, you know, in perpetrators um, and victims' lives, but with the help of community leaders so that it wasn't just police coming into, you know, particularly Indigenous homes and being the power. It was police coming in with community leaders. It was police coming in with people from the unemployment sector saying, we can help you, you know, fix problems that are going on in your life to make it easier for you to stop your violence, they found that their domestic violence assault rate went down by 40%. You know, there are solutions that work and there are solutions that work like in the next few years, not sometime in the never-never when our culture magically changes, if it ever does. Yeah. So that's where I'm coming from is I, I want to see us treat it like the national emergency it actually is. And to, to have the sectors come together and stop working at cross-purposes, because at the moment there's a lot of these sectors will work almost in competition with one another. And they'll be working with the same people. The alcohol and drug people will be working with the same client as the domestic violence people, and they may not even know that they're working with the same people. They're, not, they're often, more often than not, not collaborating. So we can see tens of millions of dollars being poured into a, a town like Burke, but it doesn't actually change anything because it wasn't being done in collaboration. Now, the, the program that I just described, which is called Justice Reinvestment, that didn't cost a huge amount of money. It was just about bringing people together and making it consistent. Mm. <laughs> you know, we're actually wasting criminal amounts of money in doing things in the way that we do them now in isolation. So mm. I really wanted to say to governments that this is possible. We just need to believe it's possible and we need to address it like we mean it. And at the moment, I'm, you know, I'm devastated by what's happened with the fourth national action plan and the fact that we've just handballed the reduction of violence to essentially to the next generation, where we've now basically accepted that another generation of children will grow up with violent fathers or violent mothers and be, and like, how are we, how do we expect those gendered norms that are set up through those family environments to change? just through respectful relationship programs at school. You've got to interrupt the violence. 
That's how we change our culture. You don't just change our attitudes, you know. So that's where I'm at. And I think that there's there's momentum growing for those types of approaches. But, you know, in Victoria, even with the amazing work being um, done out of the Royal Commission, you've still got the Andrews government building more prisons, mm. you know. You've still got these solutions that are being rolled out really, really quickly but without much forethought about how they're actually going to work. And I just think that, like, there's a lot of really great knowledge out there that we just should be taking much better advantage of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and in this situation, it's often easy to um, depersonalize these kind of issues and not see that we're all human beings in this situation and uh, we work best when we are collaborating. And the best uh, element of that program um, that you talk about in the book is, you know, around saying that we will give you all the help that you need and, you know, a raft of different um, things that one might need to access in order to start to change, um, you know, the situation for both the victim and the perpetrator. And uh, and it really is, it's not just about, um, you know, the stick approach. Um, there's a really, it's a far more nuanced and um, deep and multifaceted approach which um, is what really makes sense when I when I read it it seemed like that is something that which is missing and which could be a real thing to look into Jess I'm gonna have to leave it there and I really appreciate um, you talking this through with us it is such a sensitive issue and I know it's um, difficult for a lot of people to talk about and also to hear so I really appreciate you giving us your time today and your expertise which you've clearly amassed over such a number of years now and um, and thank you really for um, guiding us through this issue today. Thanks so much, Amy. It's a great program you've got. Thank you. That's very nice of you. <laughs> I've just been speaking with the wonderful Jess Hill, who is an investigative journalist, and she has written a book, See What You Made Me Do, Power, Control and Domestic Abuse. And I can say that we've barely scratched the surface of that book. Um, there's a lot more in there. So please don't think that we've represented even 5% of the book because there's a lot more depth and nuance than even what we've managed to cover in quite a significant interview. So I hope you're able to read it if it is something that you're interested in understanding more. And if you, whether you are male, female or however you identify, this issue affects everyone and it is not just also intimate partner relationships but it happens in family as well. There are support services. You can call 1800RESPECT which is a national helpline, 1-800-737-732. A women's crisis line, 1-800-811-811. There's also a men's referral service, 1-300-766-491. And, of course, uh, one of those really important lines that many people would be familiar with is Lifeline, which is a 24-hour crisis line on 131-114. And... Um, I hope that uh, if anyone needs further information or support that they're able to um, access that. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. I'm now joined by two fabulous people who have made the trip in to talk about an excellent play which I was fortunate to see on Sunday night. It is called Ulster American and uh, there will be a giveaway for this play coming up after the interview, so do listen in, pay attention. Um, 
I'm welcoming now, though, the director of this play, as well as one of the actors in this play. But of course, as you may know or may not know, Red Stitch Theatre is all about the ensemble. And so uh, the people who join me here, Sarah and Brett, do a range of things at Red Stitch. Hi there. Hi, how are you? Hi, Amy. Hi there. Thanks so much for coming in. I'm good. We're so happy to be here. That's great. How have you been going with previews? Because that was last week, wasn't it? Yeah, it was interesting because we um, ran, you know, in, in the way that we worked up the play over the rehearsal period, we ran the play about 20 times, I reckon, and it's <laughs> a comedy and there was zero laughs except coming from me and our stage manager for 20 20 runs. Oh, wow. So yeah. the ability to get in front of an audience uh, was such a blissful relief and then to open on Saturday night was even better so um, I think the audience I don't know Sarah can answer but I thought the cast were so ready to have some response in a play like this Absolutely. I mean, it's been so far one of those plays that you, it's a play that you read um, in script form and it's hilariously funny and you really hope that, that the audience will, will get that from it too and so far that's been our experience. So, mm. so we've had a lot of fun on stage. And it was, it's written by David Ireland, funnily enough, mm. um, and, and it was shown in Edinburgh um, and uh, it had such great reviews and a, a really strong reception and obviously it so- somewhat polarised some people depending on how offended you might be by certain things. Um, I certainly wasn't offended at all. Um, but I was, I'm really interested in taking something that, you know, you've taken from Europe and bringing it to Australia and it has so many themes that are universal and it even is discussed in this show whether you know talking about Northern Ireland is going to be relatable enough for you know Americans or British people and yeah oh there's so many like interconnections but how did you when you read this script because I believe as an ensemble you often like you all would read the script and decide to say yes that's something we would want to do what was your kind of thinking behind it yeah in in at, at, when people ask me about what Red Stitch does, if they don't know what Red Stitch yeah. Theatre does, I always say, you know, we have a, a writer's arm. We develop our own Australian work, mm. and that's um, happened in the last sort of, I guess, ten years or so. We've started doing uh, world premieres of our own stuff with Australian writers. But the the thing we sort of cut our teeth on was taking the best plays in the world, the best writing in the world. If you go to the West End or Broadway or Off-Broadway or Edinburgh or anywhere, um, you'll see plays all over the place with amazing, huge names in them and incredible, you know, incredible uh, people and incredible stories, incredible writers. And none of them make it to Melbourne because maybe, you know, if the big companies aren't doing them and they cater to a very specific um, cross-section of the theatre-going public... Um, then Melbourne audiences just don't get to see them often, mm. um, those big, huge, amazing plays. So our purview has always been really to do the best plays writing in the world that may be a little edgier and maybe a bit less palatable, I think more exciting, um, and put them on for Melbourne audiences. So when we read this, this is just exactly in the yeah. slot of what Red True. Stitch should be doing. It should push mm. you back in your seat a little bit. It's it's won awards all over the place. It's an incredible bit of writing that Melbourne audiences may not get to see if not for a company like, like Red Stitch. So um, I think when we read it, 
we saw you know and we 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 saw what it was and and the potential it had we we it was a bit of a no brainer for us yeah that's i was so well put Ah, so uh, well put. <laughs> and complimented by reviewer Andrew Furman of the Herald Sun, who I thought it was funny in his opening line of the review of your play, said, it is to borrow Ken Tynan's line about Irish playwrights, the sacred duty of Red Stitch to put on every few years a play to save theatregoers in Melbourne from inarticulate glumness. <laughs> I'm like, I'm pretty sure it's more frequent than every few years. I think you should be I would say more theatre. You know, every few months. But yeah, it wasn't that interesting. We weren't that upset about that quote, though. No. <laughs> and the five stars that came five with stars. it. Five stars, yeah. Right yeah above we were that. okay with that. Seems all right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's. I was just reflecting after I saw this play. God, how are we going to talk about it? Because there's so much in it, and I don't want to give away obviously a lot of it. Um, But, you know, what I'm really fascinated by are like these different cultures and characters and the gender dynamics and also the culture dynamics that are playing out on stage, which you all play so well. Um, But, I mean, and I guess that's what makes the comedy as well is some of those cultural references and, you know, the stereotypes we have of American actors being brash and, you know, confident and, you know, sometimes too honest um, for their own good. What were some of your perceptions of the main characters? Because we've only got three main characters and you all play a really important role in this story, which is a, a director, an actor and a playwright. And, of course, Sarah, you play the Northern Irish playwright who's written this you know really important work you know you're up there with Harold Pinter according to these uh, <laughs> actors which is only a- when they're trying to get me to change what I'm doing yeah exactly <laughs> exactly you know what what were your you know impressions when you're working through this script and you're dealing with some of the cultural references and stereotyping and how it works in the play it's been a really fascinating process actually I mean um He's written these these very clear cut characters um, who are you know f- for one of a better a term to not all men men yeah discussing yeah. Um, you know at the start you know with a kind of a thinly veiled kind of locker room discussion for different reasons and and um, and then Ruth my character comes in who's fiercely political. Um, and and really at, wants the truth at all costs. But really, as as Brett guided us through it, what we what we kept coming back to was its uh, moral values versus personal gain. And so, mm. what happens when sort of the pol- the political and um, the patriarchy get in the way of what we want? Can we stand for what we think we think? Yeah. <laughs> That trade-off. Yeah, what is the trade-off and yeah. what, what happens when um, when everybody's beliefs get in the way of, of, of what's true? Yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, I found it really fascinating that the two male characters at the beginning are talking about, like, I'm such a feminist yes, and exactly. let's talk about the Bechdel test and, you know, all these things that, you know, are demonstrating their credentials for being progressive and, you know, I'm all for women and, you know, I think they're the best and, you know, this woman playwright is amazing. We have to put her play on because she's, you know, it's great to see more women. And, you know, they're, they're conversations you hear a lot. Mm-hmm. And you then see that those kind of views tested as to how strongly they're attached to them when push comes to shove and other things get involved. I think you've hit 
on the major theme of the play, yep. which is, you know, we all want it. And it's happening in Australia at the moment. You know, we all, no one wants the Adani coal mine and nobody wants, every, no, everybody wants deforestation. Nobody wants deforestation and everybody, nobody, you know, the safe injecting rooms are great. And But what happens when it's in your backyard? Mm. You know, what happens when it's your job? And I guess these guys in the play are all ready to, um, to stand up and fight the good fight on behalf of the causes they think they believe in. But when the rubber hits the road, and their own self-interest is is challenged, um, they then are faced with a very particular set of problems that they do a horrible and hilarious job in trying to solve, all three of them really, Um, Ruth included, uh, not to give away the ending, but they all have to make their deals with the devil or lose everything, you know. Mm. So I think it is, as Sarah said, moral values versus self-interest and that is something that... um, Australian audiences, I think, you know, even in light of the international flavour of this play, will um, will be able to sort of feast on after the play's finished. Yeah. Mm. And um, Steve Bastoni, who plays the American actor in this, who's, you know, clearly crosses cinema and theatre and is highly sought after uh, to appear in this play, I was really interested in this idea that he... Um, I think he said he was it he who said he has an intersectional exemption from yes. <laughs> that, I was like stuck in my mind I'm like has to write down that because it was just really clever but it reminded me of how he was saying oh here's my identity I'm Catholic and you know I have Irish blood in me you know from generations ago and you know so I'm kind of special and you know have an intersectional exemption from some of these issues yes yes and yes. it beca- and he kind of becomes so tied to that when it becomes an issue of your script because, you know, Ruth, um, the playwright, you know, this all also boils down to some really important and still very strongly held political views about identity. Yeah, yeah. Northern Ireland versus Ireland mm. and the troubles which you, you know, reference throughout the play in mm. which this play, the play within the play, is also about. The geopolitical landscape, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's really fascinating and I do think, you know, for so much of it it is what what's happening you know, underneath. I mean, we we can have a very strong sort of political agenda over the top and 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 uh, talk the talk, but but really, it takes a very very long time for for people's ideas to really change, and that certainly happens in terms of gender politics. And in, and I think the play really, I think David mm. Ireland's really firmly got that in his sights about stripping that back and saying, okay, then. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's in- now. It's interesting. It kind of gains more currency with the Brexit yeah, of course. situation yep. we're in because we're just constantly hearing about the Irish backstop, why it's so important, and the history between Northern Ireland. And your character is so passionate and, you know, forthright, and it's like really admirable to see a character with that kind of political strength when your ch- when your play is being challenged. You're so strongly you know, in defence of it. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's really good fun to play as well. It must be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a terrific character and, and it's been really interesting to, you know, I, I guess with all acting roles you get to explore a whole backstory or a whole history that you yeah. otherwise wouldn't really ever perhaps learn much about. So that's been really fascinating as well. And, yeah, it's particularly topical at the moment. And it's yeah. interesting that... Sarah's character Ruth is standing up against I mean just for a bit of backstory of the play Mm. she's standing up against an Oscar winning actor who's come to England to be in a play to you know really cement his place in the pantheon of great 
actors of his generation and uh, uh, a, um, a an award-winning director, British director, who's going to use this as a vehicle to run the National Theatre in London. Mm. So here you have a, a powder keg, you know, you have a, um, a, a wonderful, strong female Irish voice going up against these um, male uh, creatures and when you look at celebrity and the power of celebrity and 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 you know uh, and 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 patriarchy um that's a it's it brings in not just all these geopolitical questions but all this um uh, sort of uh, all these um topics that are on the zeitgeist in terms of celebrity mm. and 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 patriarchy and not just you know not not just um uh, gender politics, but actually a whole range of other, even the monarchy and, you know, um, all these other fascinating issues. So it really is uh, a, a really rich sort of um, tapestry, tapestry mm. that, that Ruth's or Sarah's character is woven into and has to stand up against as a as a singular female voice. Yeah. And she, like you do stand in really stark contrast, I think, in terms of moral character or strength to the two men who just seem to initially seem really strong-minded and very committed to their views. And, you know, they end up looking to me quite wishy-washy. Well, what's interesting <laughs> is, and That's I don't know great. what you think, we can't really give it away, <laughs> yeah, but no, I don't. It's, Ru- it's, it's a tough Ruth one has a problem, <laughs> and that is that she really wants her play on too. Yeah. And she can jettison these guys and say, stuff you, I'm going to, uh, I'm not having people of your... Um, moral fiber in mm. my play. Um, if she was, if she was, you know, extremely moral person who didn't have her own self interest at heart, she could also do that. So she's faced. But if she does it, yeah. of course, she kind of loses everything too. So she has her own decisions to make uh, in the play about whether she's prepared to sacrifice her self interest in in you know for the sake of her moral values mm. and so she has to make that decision and that's a compelling one at the end of the play as well which we won't give away no it's a yeah yeah <laughs> let's not even touch it you'll know what we mean if you go like and you should go i've got to say um yeah some of the writing of this is just so well fresh and it's really i mean it's I almost felt like I got whiplash, like emotional whiplash from some of the things that were happening between the characters and the words that were exchanged because, you know, there was so much behind them and they're also very familiar, as I've said, you know, like there's, I mean, I wrote a month, heaps of them down. I'm just going to try and find one that doesn't give things away. Um, but there was, oh, yeah, it's so funny. Um your Chekhov with jokes, I really like that. Yes, that especially really said good. by Dave, who played <laughs> Uncle Vanya the other, you know, a couple of years ago. That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. But they were saying, "Oh, I love strong women," you know, and how? Oh, I wish I, you know, and I'd be a woman if I could. You yes, know. yes, yes. Oh, and 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 then you were like saying, "I bet you have a microscopic penis." Like, yeah. it was just like all these really hilarious exchanges, but and they might, they could be seen or they could be played as a very like at a superficial level. Mm. But there's just so much more happening underneath what are quite biting, excoriating kind of exchanges. Like, oh, how did you work the script in that way? Like, because clearly there is that top surface level line and there are many kind of like one-liners or two-liners and there's a lot of back and forth, but then there's all this, you know, subtext and underneath emotion going on. Mm. It's true, isn't it? And I, I think we really, I mean, we we talked a lot about about what it is to, 
I, I guess, be, be a woman in the world and a man at the moment. Mm. And because this is such a current piece of writing, um, we, we, were really, we were really brought a lot of our own experiences into that. So I, I think that's sort of threaded through as well as it would be for any, you know, any person living right now and trying to cope with what it is to be in a, in a sort of a newly politically correct landscape around, particularly around gender issues, I think. Yeah. Um, because everyone's navigating it. Everyone's navigating and, yeah. it, and um, but but the underpinnings of that are new, and so where it kind of bubbles out in ways that it shouldn't. And I think that's a that's a really a really clever thing about his script. I mean, one of the 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 feedback that I've got from people who've come to see it is, I, I loved it because I laughed so much, but I also. Uh, was forced to think all the way through. Like mm. you don't leave – it's not a play where you kind of leave your brain at the door. You're thinking about, you know, what's happening um, in the political climate and what's happening now and how you're forced to think about what would you do in this particular situation, how does power affect what you think about things, how does hierarchy change, how mm. you might navigate things, what do you keep quiet about. All of those sorts of things are coming up for people. And um, and for us as actors, that's really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, Brett, you were talking about how, you know, there's a stage manager and yourself kind of being part of the audience for a lot of the time. It seems like it would be quite an intimate, like, production to stage given there's three actors and you all really do kind of have an equal prominence on Mm. the stage together. And I was interested in, you know, the staging of it and the set is so complimentary but not distracting. And I feel like a lot of modern day theatre can almost be like a cinema experience because mm-hmm. the set is like a character in itself. Yeah. And what I love about Red Stitch Often is that it's always about the acting, but it's also about, you know, the whole atmosphere that you've created through very little. Yeah, Louise McCarthy did the set and she really, really, um, I think... Um, brought something I don't think we've seen at Red Stitch yeah. before. It's a it's a naturalistic set, but she just made it so beautiful and used it so cleverly that um, uh, she should be very proud. And I think this is a play. There's no set changes. There's no nothing. It's an actor's piece. I sometimes think Red Stitch is a place where really good actors. You know, so much work in Australia is. You know, it, it doesn't give actors scope to really get out of second gear. You know, mm, even you yeah. know television and 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 all sorts of things that are going on around town. They, you know, they're good and and that's what we do as actors. But it doesn't give you a chance to stretch your legs. And sometimes I think Red Stitch is a place where good actors can come to throw it in to fifth and just really go for it. And I think this is a really good example of that, where you see actors and you might see them on whatever TV show and go, geez, I didn't know they were capable of this. And and it's an hour and well, an hour, 75 minutes of, of one scene, no scene changes, where actors are in a beautiful space and just going for it. Yeah. And, um, and that is a really refreshing – and I think it's, again, what Red Stitch does well is wind them up and let them go. And that was my <laughs> – that was my – when actors are this good, you know, Dave yeah. Whiteley as well and, and yeah. Steve Bastoni and Sarah Sutherland next to me um, – you know, when they're that good, my job as a director is really to do that and then sort of just keep sculpting my way through it. But, mm. um, yeah, it, it's an actor's piece and I think that is a really beautiful thing for audiences to watch. There's no nothing getting in the way. Yes. And as you say, it's a very small space, so you're really in the living room with them. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's been, you know, my job partly has been to support 
these wonderful actors as they as they really um, go about their business. Mm. You know? It's such a unique offering that I think Red Stitch you've like really carved out this great niche well it's not even a niche i feel like it should just be how theater is but that's my biased opinion yeah ours too <laughs> you know tell the australia council exactly i know i know coming like i did do acting in and i was i love dramaturgy and i love just like watching great actors act you know and you know there's all, there's so much more to it the sound and this lighting and it all is really important and critical but yeah i think i felt like this play probably highlighted just how important that is in theatre in Melbourne, mm. getting to see, yeah, really talented ensembles work together in like a really symbiotic way. Yeah, it, I agree. I've been watching it for a while now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, it's so refreshing and exciting. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, thank goodness we have plenty of theatres around Melbourne where you can you and can, it's wonderful. Yeah. 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 It's really it, – it has been – it's been a terrific process too. I mean, we've had, you know, with all the kind of – uh, fireworks on stage. We've had a very, we've had a very calm and clear director <laughs> behind us, and this terrific crack team. So yeah. all together, and it, it, it's um, it's led to something which is just can be explosive on stage because it, in those really positive ways, it's very supported mm. um, by our team. So we've we've been really lucky. Mm. It's great to see so many different companies doing these great works and bringing things from overseas back here because I think that is a great thing that you've got both the local and the global. Focus. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. We get to pick and choose. We're so lucky. You are. Yeah. And someone, a lucky subscriber could be so lucky and actually go along. So I'm going to do a giveaway for this fantastic uh, theatre play. Is it, it's Ulster American. Is that how Ulster. to say Ulster? Ulster. Ulster. Yeah. Ulster. <laughs> and that's the other thing. Sarah, your accent, as we were saying off air, is insanely good. Oh, for that's so Irish. kind. Hard one. Yeah. Helped along by my daughter's uh, kindergarten teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. I hope that um, people can go and see it and you can also look up the reviews, which are just coming out um, as we speak. Thank you so much, Brett and Sarah, for coming in to discuss this play and also congratulations to you and your fellow cast members and production. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.